Sometimes we read the Bible and the instructions are plain and we think, it's got to be more than that. Is there anybody else up there? The scene in chapter 2, we don't have time to cover it all. You can see it's a lengthy chapter, but half of it we can tackle in the next few minutes. The scene is dramatic as it goes from the bedroom of King Nebuchadnezzar while he's restless on his bed to the courtroom of the palace where the wise men, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers are gathered together. And finally, the scene ends, for our purposes at least, with a prayer meeting with Daniel and his three friends. So for the ease of following along, or if you're taking notes, we begin with the king's insomnia, and then on to the Chaldeans' incompetence, and then finally the captives' intercession, as Daniel prays. So let's look first of all in the first couple of verses where we read, Now in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was so troubled that his sleep left him. This is the king's insomnia. Then the king gave the command to call the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I have had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. God has creative ways of getting our attention. Jonah found that out. Thought he was going to take a princess vacation cruise out in the Mediterranean. Boy, was he in for a surprise. It turned into an episode of Jaws. All the while, God was orchestrating the scene to get his attention. It worked. The prophets of Baal and the king of Israel, God got their attention on Mount Carmel. As Elijah called fire down from heaven and they became crispy critters. God had a message. He got his message through on that day to Israel. The Bible says in Hebrews that God at various times and in various ways has spoken to people in times past. Here he gets his message through to Nebuchadnezzar a wicked man, a man who didn't have the knowledge of God. But what's awesome to see is that God is trying to get His message across to everybody, not just His kids. Even a godless king like Nebuchadnezzar, God is trying to break through to his conscience to have him surrender his life to Him. I often think of this scene when I pray for world rulers. I think of kings and prime ministers and presidents and people in government. And I say, God, send them a dream. Trouble them. And then send them a Daniel who can stand in their midst and make sense out of such a situation. A definite gift of leadership like Daniel. We mentioned last week Nebuchadnezzar. His name comes up again in the first few verses of chapter 2. The question is, who was he? Well, history tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was the oldest son of Nabopolassar. Goofy names, don't you think? Nabopolassar shared the Babylonian throne with his oldest son, Nebuchadnezzar. By the way, Nebuchadnezzar means, Oh my God, Nabu, please protect my son. If you're ever looking for Bible names for kids, stay away from these two. Not a good choice, based on a pagan god and ideology. Nebuchadnezzar, history tells us, had a short fuse. An angry man, had no patience, 
He would take his enemies, history says, and roast them over a slow fire. In 2 Kings 25, he took captive Judah, took their king Zedekiah, stood Zedekiah up in front of his sons, tied him up, had his sons killed in front of him, and then gouged Zedekiah's eyes out took him captive into Babylon so that the last visual image he had in his mind was the death of his sons. It's the kind of a person Nebuchadnezzar was. In chapter 3, he builds an image. Whoever doesn't bow to the image is killed in a burning, fiery furnace. So the guy has a short fuse. And this is the situation that Daniel finds himself in. And we see it again in this chapter as an order goes out to kill many of the people in Babylon. But I want you to look over at verse 29 of chapter 2, we find something else out about Nebuchadnezzar, and that is he was curious about the future of his kingdom. Daniel stands before him, and this is something we'll get to really next week. And Daniel says, As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what shall be. Don't ever think that royalty and fame don't have a price tag. Nebuchadnezzar got to the top, but now he wonders, how long will it last? What other enemies will come and steal my kingdom from me? What will the future hold? And thoughts like that keep him awake at night, along with the dream that he got in verse 1. It's been said, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. And the cares of the day are often taken into the nighttime. Some of you have had that experience. You thought you dealt with the situation during the day. All is well till you lie your head down on that pillow at night. Then like creepy crawlers, they come out of the closets and those thoughts bug you. You can't sleep. A minister talking to a little boy said, Did you say your prayers last night? He said, Yes, I say my prayers every night. The minister said, That's good. Do you say your prayers during the day? The kid honestly said, no, I ain't scared during the daytime. (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar was worried and scared at night. And those thoughts happened to follow him, not only from the day into the night, but into the next day. As now he has to meet with the wise men of the kingdom to find out what these things meant. But notice before we get into that scene, verse 1, the word troubled. The word troubled is significant. It's a Hebrew word, pa'am, that means to push or to beat persistently. It speaks of a deep emotional disturbance that Nebuchadnezzar had because of this dream. What I find significant about this is that in chapter 1 you have the story of a victorious king, and in chapter 2 you have the story of a troubled man, one and the same person. A man on top. He's reached the pinnacle, but he's a troubled man. I found that the rich, the famous, And those who rule often have this common experience. They become troubled people. They've reached the top, but they're not satisfied. Eddie Murphy, a few years ago, was called one of America's top role models for kids. Not by parents, believe me. But kids themselves said he's one of the people they'd like to grow up to be like. I have no idea why. I don't see the logic in that, but that's just what the polls say. Eddie Murphy said, however, recently, I feel a void. I feel like something is missing in my life. I don't think there's anyone who feels there isn't something missing in their life. 
No matter how much you accomplish, no matter how much money you make, no matter how many cars or houses you have or how many people you make happy, life isn't perfect. Now what troubled Nebuchadnezzar was not only the future, not only the thoughts of his own fame and how stable he was, but this dream that verse 1 speaks about. Actually, it's plural, isn't it? Dreams. Whether he had several dreams in one night or the same dream night after night. And it's opened up and revealed in chapter 2 by Daniel. Toward the end of chapter 2, we'll get to it next week. Now, I'm, I'm curious about things like this. And I have enough medical background that I did a little research on dreams this week. And I found something interesting I didn't know. You dream an average of five dreams every night. In your lifetime, you'll dream up to 186,000 times. You say, I don't dream that much. Yes, you do. You don't remember them all the time, but you dream that many times a night. And as you fall asleep, about 90 minutes into your sleep cycle, your first dream begins. It ends, and about 90 minutes later, the next dream begins. And they increase in length as the night goes on. What happens is the large brain cells in the brain stem release stimuli that shoot up into the cortex of the brain. They're picked up by the auditory and many of those areas, the, the senses of sight and uh, hearing and so forth, and they're scrambling to make sense of those stimulations. And what's amazing to me is that God is able to take those large brain cells and cause the stimulation to hit just the right nerve centers to cause just the right pictures and just enough heartache to trouble a king like Nebuchadnezzar. This was not just a dream from pizza. God was speaking to him. God was orchestrating his physiological functions so that he would be troubled by this dream. So he calls in everybody. And now from the king's insomnia, we see the Chaldeans' incompetence. The Chaldeans, in verse 4, spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. A nice way to say, uh-oh, we're in trouble. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll give you the interpretation. But the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you'll be cut in pieces. See, I told you he had a short fuse. And your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. They answered again and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you're trying to gain time, because you see my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you, for you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and then I shall know that you can give me its interpretation." The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, ruler, has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It's a difficult thing that the king requires, and there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with the flesh. For this reason, the king was angry and very furious and gave a command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out, and they began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. 
Now let me draw your attention to the list of these wise guys. I mean wise men. You have magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, and Chaldeans. Sounds like a list in an occultic New Age bookshop, doesn't it? In fact, these were the cream of the occultic crop of those days. They were the wisest people in Babylon, the college grads, the PhDs, so to speak. They were involved both in magical occultic arts as well as having studied for many years. Here's a quick rundown. The magicians in this chapter are sacred scholars. The astrologers are priests known to you probably by the New Testament name Magi. Remember the Magi who came to visit Jesus when he was born? They came from this part of the country, probably influenced by Daniel and his predictions of the Messiah. And later on, the offspring of the Magi, who were influenced by Daniel and his godly activity, followed, as the prediction said, and came over to the Middle East. Then there's sorcerers. These are people who used herbs and charms and potions in witchcraft. Chaldeans is just a general term for all of these guys put together. These are the wise people of Babylon. Now, it was their job to interpret dreams. Of course, there's always a catch. The catch is, tell me the dream first, and I'll tell you what it means. You can see how that would lead to abuse, right? Anybody can make something up. Hey, King, tell me what you dreamed. I'll tell you exactly what it means. Well, this stands for this, and this stands for that. And I have a hunch that Nebuchadnezzar thought, you know, these guys are like generic fortune cookies in their predictions. They're not worth even putting them on the payroll. If they're worth their salt, they'll be able to tell me what I dreamt. And they'll be able to make sense of the interpretation. And so the decree goes out. Do it or die. All of the wise men will be killed if you cannot come up with the interpretation. What makes this scene so applicable to our situation today is there's a rise of astrology, occultism, New Age thinking, black magic, white magic today. There's such a void that people in America are sensing that all the predictions in Time, Newsweek, Life magazine are saying that there's a hunger for spirituality, spiritual experiences. And it's very lucrative business. There's an association called the American Astrological Association that claims that this year it has sold to 33,660 people horoscopes. And they charge between $3.50 and $10 a head for these predictions. And there are 86,000 women who have paid $8.40 each for through-the-mail, genie-in-a-bottle, good-luck pendant. You think, who would buy that stuff? 86,000 people bought that stuff. Then there's a new book out called The Handbook of Supernatural Powers, which is a bunch of directions for how to make potions and cast uh, spells and curses on people. And they've sold over 200,000 copies of it. And I just found out this week that Prentice Hall, the book publisher, has a club called the Circle of Mystic and Occult Arts Book Club with 16,842 members. This tells me that all of the materialism that this country has put its faith in has failed and people are looking for answers. There's a spiritual thirst that's being filled with neo-paganism. People have rejected Jesus Christ, rejected the authority of the Bible, 
rejected the accuracy of the Bible. And they've gone into these whack hammer kinds of things that just can't produce any results. But they'll fall for anything. If you have ever been the victim of insomnia and you've been forced to watch late-night television, you've noticed how there's a lot of channels that now cover this psychic hotline, 1-900. And they got these guys dressed in the same clothes we used to wear in the 60s. But now they're old and they have beards now and somehow they're a little wiser and for a lot of money they'll tell you your future. There's such a thirst for spiritual things and yet, like the wise men of Babylon, there's a real failure to produce concrete answers in people's lives. In fact, they did an experiment here in the United States. They took the same horoscope, the same prediction, sent them to a hundred different people from all twelve zodiac signs, born at different times during the year. Exact same prediction, but they said, now this is a prediction, this is a horoscope specifically tailored for you personally. And almost everybody wrote back thanking them for the accuracy, the pertinence of those predictions. And people who researched it said there's this natural tendency to uh, fall into auto-suggestion. You hear it, you go, yeah, that's for me, and you start working out ways to fulfill that prediction. But there's no way that those things can really produce the things that they promise. So we have this scene here. King can't sleep calls in the wise guys. Wise guys, what did I dream? And what does it mean? We can't tell you. What do you mean you can't tell me? I put you guys on the payroll. What does it mean? We don't know. No king has ever made this request. We'll do it or die. Now, this incident is for a number of reasons. It's a setup. Have you ever had God set up something in your life? It's just an obvious setup. God's in this. One notable experience comes to my mind. I was in Huntington Beach sitting on a lifeguard tower at about one in the morning and I was praying, God, use me. I want to preach the gospel. Use me. I was praying that and I heard a crunching sound, a crumpling sound. It was coming from underneath me. I thought, what is a crumpling sound doing coming from underneath me at one in the morning? And I looked under the lifeguard tower and here was a guy, no joke, one o'clock in the morning eating Cheetos out of a bag, staring at the ocean. I thought, this has got to be a setup. Here I'm praying that God would use me, and there's a guy eating Cheetos underneath this lifeguard tower. God must want me to preach the gospel to him. I did. He came to Christ. This is a setup in the book of Daniel. It's to do at least three things. Number one, it's to agitate a king who can't think about anything but his own kingdom. Now this dream troubles him, and now he's thinking about the future. There are so many people that live and think about everything else but their future. They think about the here and now, immediate gratification. They don't plan far enough in advance. An older man was speaking to a young guy who was in high school. Son, what are your plans? Well, I plan to finish high school and go to this college. They accepted me. Great. Then what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to get married, have kids, raise them. Great. Then what are you going to do? Then I'm going to send them to college. Well, then what are you going to do? Then I'm going to retire. Then what are you going to do? I'm going to die. Well, then what are you going to do? Oh, I don't know. I haven't thought that far in advance. Well, you better. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't thinking at all in advance, except for really the temporary, his kingdom. Now he's jarred. He calls for the wise men. And this is a setup not only to agitate, agitate, agitate a king, but to show that all of these other means 
are a failure. They don't work. They don't produce. All of the other religions don't lead to God. I remember hearing a, uh, an ex-witch or warlock at a gospel meeting one night say, when I used to practice sorcery as an unbeliever, and I used to have spells and incantations, we were taught by our mentors in witchcraft to find out if we were casting a spell on a born-again Christian because we knew there would be detrimental effects to us if we did. If we cast a spell and the person was a believer, born again, the spell would happen to us. Whatever we cast, we would suffer the consequences. Now that was enough to wake him up. It was enough to wake up Nebuchadnezzar. I'm thinking about the future. These guys can't produce. Now what? Now Daniel comes in. From the king's insomnia to the Chaldeans' incompetence comes to the captives' intercession. Because Daniel is one of the wise men, and in verse 14, we read this. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, notice, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. Captain of the king's guard means that he was the top executioner of Nebuchadnezzar. That's what captain of the guard means. He was there to kill Daniel. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. And then Daniel went to his house and made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from God, the God of heaven, concerning the secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. What is Daniel to do? The king has ordered the decree, death to the wise men. Well, he does four things. First of all, he doesn't get ruffled. He answers the king, it says, with wisdom and counsel. He doesn't say, oh no, I'm dead, I'm going to run. He says, what's the rush? Why is this so urgent? Why so harsh? Why such a reaction? You know, there is something to be said for confidence and calmness in the face of adversity. The Bible tells us a soft answer, what? Turns away wrath. It disarms a person. They expect you to get agitated and you go, all right. Passengers were flying in an airplane with four engines. Three of them went out in mid-flight. There was one engine left. Suddenly the pilot appeared from the cabin, opened the door. He had a parachute on his back and he said, don't worry, stay calm, I'm going to go for help. Why is the king's decree so harsh, so urgent? I'll tell you, some of the greatest testimonies I've seen is from Christians who are faced with insurmountable circumstances, horrible odds, and there's just this confidence in God. Here you've got this insomniac, nail-biting king worried about the future, and you've got a teenager very confident in the future. What a contrast. Said the sparrow to the robin, I would surely like to know why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so. 
said the robin to the sparrow. Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. It's so evident when a person trusts the Lord because of the confidence that he answers. So he wasn't ruffled. Secondly, he put his faith on the line. I want you to notice verse 16. Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Now this is interesting. He persuades Arioch, the head executioner, to let him talk to the king. And he goes in and says, Okay, king, I'll tell you the answer. Just give me a little bit of time. You give me a little bit of time, I'll be back. I'll tell you the interpretation. I had it. Daniel didn't have the interpretation. How could he make this kind of a statement? What if he failed? Well, think about it. What did he have to lose? If he failed and God didn't give him the interpretation, is he any worse off than before? He's going to die anyway. And with this reckless abandonment that I think is actually a great trait in this case, hey, what have I got to lose? God will give me the interpretation. Give me time. Do you remember the story of Jonathan, the son of Saul? The Philistines are encamped around Israel. And a thought comes into Jonathan's mind. The battle hasn't begun yet. The strategy has not yet been calculated. So Jonathan grabs his armor bearer and he says, It may be that the Lord will work for us against the Philistines. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Hey, armor bearer, maybe if it's God, all of the Philistines will be delivered into just my hand and your hand. If it's God, He doesn't need an army. He could just use us. Who knows? Let's just take a step of faith and see it, if it's going to happen. You see, there's a difference between passive faith, oh yes, God can do anything, and active faith like Daniel who said, if God doesn't do something, I'm dead. So let's go for it. And he steps out. There was a man who was walking along the shores of the Dead Sea in Israel. He didn't know how to swim. Trying to balance himself on the rocks, he fell into the sea. He was thrashing madly to stay afloat. Finally, he thought, what's the use? I can't swim anyway. I'm going to die. And he just was ready to abandon himself to death. And because he relaxed... He floated to the top because he had forgotten. You see, the Dead Sea is 25% salt, not 5% like the ocean. And with all of the other minerals, a person can float from one side to the other, literally from Israel to Jordan if you wanted to. And he just relaxed, and he floated. And Daniel just sort of says, all right, the edict's out. Here goes. Lord, you better move or I'm dead. And he floated. God spoke to him that night and gave him the answer. Verse 17, the third thing Daniel did is pray with his friends. Daniel went into the house, made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions, that they might seek the mercies from God of heaven concerning the secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel. What a picture. Daniel puts his faith on the line, prays, God answers. A picture of a prayer meeting in Babylon. Four Hebrew lads praying. Why? Because the fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man avails much. Do you believe that? Is your first recourse prayer? Is it the automatic response or reaction to the trouble that comes? Boom! Pray. 
We've got to take this before God. Let me call up my friends that God might act on our behalf. If you ever want to read a story about a man filled with faith and you want your own faith bolstered, read books by a man named George Mueller or books about George Mueller, either a biography or his great little autobiography. He was a man who believed that God wanted him to start an orphanage in England. He started one. He had no money. But he had the firm conviction that when God does something, you don't have to ask or beg for money. In fact, he thought he should never let people know his needs financially. So he opened up an orphanage, didn't have the money, didn't know where it was going to come from. He has a lot of stories about how God provided. One day he said he sat the kids down at the table for food. He had the food prepared. He didn't have any milk for them. He knew the kids needed milk. He didn't really have anything for them to drink at all except water. But he said, kids, let's pray and thank God for our food and our milk. As they were praying, a knock was heard at the door. The milkman had broken down outside. He said, you know, I, my truck broke down and I can't make it to London without this stuff spoiling. Can you guys use some milk? And Mueller had so many stories to tell how when he put his faith on the line and prayed as the automatic response to every situation that God just pulled through. Now listen to what Mueller says to us. And here's a man who could speak. God delights to increase the faith of His children. God delights to increase the faith of His children. You say, all right, great. I want to be a man of faith. How does it work? Mueller says, We ought, instead of wanting no trials before victory, no exercise for patience, to be willing to take them from God's hand as a means. I say, and I say it deliberately, that trials, obstacles, difficulties, and sometimes defeats are the very food of faith. Backed into a corner, up against the wall, is Daniel. He prays, puts his faith on the line. God gives him the answer. The king's insomnia, the Chaldeans' incompetence, the captives' intercession, and Daniel shone brightly, giving God the glory. Now, is, is that your response? Is that how you act in times such as these, in times of trial and obstacle. How important is prayer in your life? I would venture to say that you and I pray based upon two things, how we perceive prayer and how we perceive God. You see, there's a lot of people who look at prayer as, that eh, doesn't really work. I mean, it's nice to do as a kid. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. I used to do that. That's fine for kids. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts which you are about to receive from thy bounty through Christ the Lord. Amen. I memorize that. It's good for kids and preachers, but in real life it doesn't work. If you believe that, you won't pray. If you believe it works, God established it as a means to an end. God put me in this impossible situation. He's saying, jump. Oh, Lord, I trust you. Here goes. Then you'll pray. Then your perception of God. How do you picture God? What's He like to you? Do you see God sort of like a kid sees his dad? Hey, should we ask dad for that new thing? Is he in a good mood? Did he win at golf? Did he close the deal? He did great. Let's talk to him. Let's hit him up. He's in a good mood. Oh, he's in a bad mood. Better not talk to him now. There's people who view God so unbiblically. 
He's a merciful, loving Heavenly Father who loves you so much that He won't give you anything you ask because He loves you too much. You could destroy yourself, but He'll give that which glorifies Himself through your life. Lord, here's a great chance for you to be glorified. These Chaldeans have failed, and this guy needs the interpretation for his dream. Please, be merciful and give us the answer. It happened, and the fourth thing Daniel did in verses 20 through 23 is he praised God. I love it. He didn't take the credit for himself. He didn't rush into the king and say, I've got the solution. Notice, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness. Light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. You have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. Not only did he praise God, but he was really gracious as he stood before the king's men. And what really impresses me about Daniel is the next verse. We'll close with this. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king its interpretation. He could have said, You see, these guys are bogus. Kill them. I'm the one. I'm the one who got this dream. I'm the one who got the interpretation. And he could have taken all the credit for it. He refused to take the credit for it. He let God take the credit for it. Secret to being used by God. Let God take the credit for it. The minister, after one of his sermons, went to the back of the church, was shaking hands with his congregation. A woman came up and thanked him for the encouraging sermon. And I guess he thought that the best thing to do is say, No, don't thank me. Thank the Lord. She said, Well, I thought about that, but it wasn't that good. Well, this dream was really good, and Daniel refused to take any credit for it. Don't kill these guys. Don't kill these guys. Stop to praise God. You know that God specializes at impossibilities? In fact, it could be that He has arranged circumstances in your life to put you in a real fix so that you would learn that fact. Because you might think, well, you know, things aren't so bad right now. I've got it covered. God says, oh, really? Well, let's do a little Jonah activity then. I haven't heard from you lately. You haven't been praying lately. But I know that as soon as you're in an impossible situation, you'll cry out to me. And I love you so much, I long to hear your voice. Here goes. Oh, God! Hey, good to hear from you. Been a long time. How you been? Well, you can jump. God just says, jump. I don't know, Lord. Let go. Anybody else up there? There's no one else up there. Let go. Underneath you are everlasting arms. You won't splat. It might feel so strange to just lay back and trust the Lord, but He might bring you into a situation, or you might be in one right now where that's your only recourse. What do you got to lose? Got everything to gain. Some of you have never trusted that way, leaned back or let go in a relationship with God. Some of you are struggling to make sense out of your own life. 
And God is saying, trust me, release your life, give it to me, watch what I can do with it. This might be the first step for some of you this morning to say, Lord, here's my life taken. I'm just going to trust you with the rest of it. I've messed it up so much up to this point, but I'm going to give you the rest of my life. I'm giving my life to Jesus Christ today. Heavenly Father, we would pray that that would be the case. We pray for those who have come or are listening by radio who need to just let go and trust that you'll catch them, that they would release their life their future into the hands of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for them. There's other of us who do know you and it's been very difficult in our lives. You might have us in a situation where you can be glorified in this impossible situation. And then, Father, we want to pray for those who are rulers of countries, kings, prime ministers, presidents, congressmen, that, Lord, you'd trouble them with dreams and then you'd send them Daniels who can stand and make sense with a God-given plan, men and women of encouragement, biblical wisdom, that you'd be glorified in the governments of our nation, governments of this world. Lord, we just thank you for your sovereignty and how you set up things, placing the actors on the stage for different times in history that you might be glorified. I pray, Lord, that we walk out of here with a greater appreciation of your control. And we would trust you to control our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.